Hey fam, welcome back to the show. So today we are running our 2023 highlight reel, if you will. And for a little bit more context, this was really difficult to pass through the amazing catalog of interviews and guests and even solo casts, if I do toot my own horn, to pull out some highlights. But I really had to just lean into some of the standout moments from this last year of doing this podcast. Super grateful for all of our guests. Super grateful for your ears and attention. But we had to pick out some ones that really stood out. So let's get into the show. First up, the clip we're going to discuss is from a very familiar face around these parts, Mr. Paul Saladino himself. And this is from episode two, so very early on in Radical Health Radio history, where we got Paul on to discuss his habits for radical health. We actually ran through the seven-step framework and we discussed each step. But I asked Paul in the episode, what were maybe some of the habits that he's really leaning into to optimize his own life and his actualization of Radical Health Radio? Because everybody knows Paul is so knowledgeable and smart about the food piece. I was very curious about what does he do outside of that. And it was really cool to hear him discuss how much he was leaning into things like his circadian rhythms and grounding and really focusing on his light diet and his relationship to his phone, spending more time in nature, hanging out with friends, creating memories. And uh, we even got a little teaser as how Paul approaches his sexy time and his pretty early cutoff time for that because he is keeping sleep sacred. So let's run the clip and show you what Paul does from a habit perspective to really thrive. I think that the most impactful habits I have right now are some of the most impactful habits have to do around circadian rhythms and sleep. Mm. So getting sunlight in the morning, um, grounding, and that's built into surfing, but perhaps more importantly or equally important um, is screen avoidance late at night yeah. and and a, a distinct bedtime which sounds uh, geriatric uh, and we're going back to the wise elder thing i suppose here i can't escape it there you are. but uh <laughs> i mean we know that having a distinct bedtime uh, a distinct time when you go to sleep and a distinct time when you wake up having a consistent circadian rhythm really helps with sleep quality and i find that if i vary that even by 20 or 30 minutes which definitely is hard sometimes in our lives my sleep quality suffers and yeah. so the habits that i try to develop are not looking at my phone, especially in like low light settings, which yeah. appears to have a higher flicker rate, which can really, I wouldn't even expect it, but it seems to really affect the circadian rhythm in a negative way. Not looking at my phone at all, Huge. Uh, you know, uh, at night, even on a low light setting because of the flicker uh, and then consistent bedtime, consistent rising time, and then early morning sunlight. I think those are some of my most impactful habits right now, but th those Love are challenging that. for people. Yeah, they are very much so. And I think uh, it's not that sexy, right? We always think about what can we do and how can we hustle more or like do more? And it's like, no, protect your light environment, you know, get outside in the morning, ground yourself, look at the sun, get to bed on time, which is wonderful. So we've talked about kind of adding in the most nutrient dense food on the planet. We've talked about eliminating the most objectionable foods on the planet. We've talked about building healthy habits. Step number four is, okay, you eliminate all of this stuff. What do you eat? Now, you've already alluded to this, that you eat the diet that nature provides in abundance in the most bioavailable form. Give us the two-minute summary on this idea that you said, I think eating meats and fruits and things that come from nature is the bulk of our ancestrally appropriate and health-promoting diet. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that animal foods make up the bulk of any optimal diet for humans. Um, and I don't mean to be too strict on that, but I just think that animal foods are so nutrient rich and there's a lot of ways to do it. You can make animal foods, eggs, milk, dairy. I'm eating a lot of, or drinking a lot of raw milk these days, yeah. uh, raw cheeses, um, and then meat and organs. So that's the centerpiece of the diet. And then adding to that are the carbohydrates because you mm -hmm. can get fat and protein from the animal foods. You don't get many carbohydrates from the animal foods. So where do we get carbohydrates from? Most people, myself included, just do oatmeal or grains. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's the best source for humans for a lot of the reasons we mentioned earlier, anti-nutrients, phytic acid, oxalates. I just think that there are better ways to get carbohydrates from simple sugars. And we alluded to this. We don't have to go deep down this rabbit hole, yeah. but I don't think there's a reason to fear those. And I think there's good evidence to suggest they're helpful for humans. In fact, there are randomized controlled studies with diabetics giving them um, at the end of an eight week period, their their amount of honey was increased every two weeks. And in the last, I think the final two weeks, they had over a hundred grams of honey, perhaps even more. And, and their fasting glucose and fasting insulin went down and they lost weight. So um, that's, that's a nuanced thing. Yeah. Um, and 
people should talk to their physician or consume some of the content that I've put out regarding sugars and and how to use them in in your you know sort of medical state. But I don't think that sugars or simple sugars are even harmful for people with diabetes, which is a radical a radical notion. And so beyond that, I think getting the carbohydrates from things like fruit or fruit juice, preferably fruit juice yeah. that you've made, yeah. um, and and honey and maple syrup is the best way that we do it as humans. And there's, I should emphasize that you need to be in control of the foods you're eating because yeah. the additives in these foods can be harmful for humans. Um, you know, citric acid is an additive to a lot of processed foods, even fruit juices sometimes, and that is derived from um, problematic sources or, you know, uh, can have mold contaminants, even vitamin C added to fruit juices can be from bad sources like yeah. corn and can have triggering actions. So if you're thinking about a fruit juice, it, it should really just be sim super simple fruit juice. I don't even fear that. I make a lot of orange juice fresh squeezed at my house. Now I have mangoes that I will juice, but getting fruit, getting honey, getting maple syrup. Beautiful. Now, overarching that is a little bit more nuance regarding the macros. And I think people should experiment with this and see where they feel best. But this is another thing where I've started to kind of evolve and experiment a little bit recently by increasing carbohydrates. One thing that stayed pretty consistent was the amount of protein. Mm -hmm. I find that for most of us, around a gram or a little less than a gram per pound of goal body weight seems to be a good place for protein. So if you start there, and then you can kind of vary fat and carbohydrates and see where you feel better, whether you feel better with a little more carbohydrates or a little more fat in your diet. But I do think both are necessary. When I cut down too much on fat, I don't feel good. Yeah. When I cut down too much on carbohydrates, I don't feel good. Yeah. So you know, people can follow my content or, you know, reach out to the health guides at Hardened Soil if they need a little more guidance on Absolutely. that last, the last piece of that macro equation. But, but I think that thinking about that and then filling those buckets with the foods that we mentioned is a pretty good starting point. In fact, let's just be, I'll be candid. You know, I think it's a freaking great starting point for most people. Yeah. I think it gets most people most of the way there. Right. And it's just consistently yeah. following the laws of nature and trusting that. And again, drawing on that ancestral wisdom and integrating into these modern high-tech lives. So our next step is all about the physical, pushing yourself physically. Um, you have um, made it no um, secret that you're a surf-obsessed dude and these days. You find yourself <laughs> on the water for a couple of hours each day. I want to know what your current relationship is to movement and, you know, kind of turning that up sometimes, slowing it down sometimes, and how you push yourself physically. The, the thing I'll say from the outset is you can overdo this. Yes. Like anything, you can overdo this. And I don't think it's good to overdo it. I think exhaustive exercise is something that we should be careful of as humans. And look, I respect people who go hard in the paint, in the bat, you know, playing basketball metaphorically or physically, or, you know, I respect people who go hard in the gym. But I think that if you want to go hard in the paint, metaphorically, you need to make sure you are checking your labs and understanding things like a cortisol to testosterone yeah. ratio or a cortisol to DHES ratio, because you will easily get overtrained and you will do the opposite of what you want to do. You also need to understand your thyroid. So I think that movement is actually easier than most of us believe. This mm -hmm. isn't, this isn't paying penis, pen, uh, this isn't paying penance for, for sins of your past, you yeah. know, for all of the seed oils you've eaten, you don't need to kill yourself. <laughs> Um, go easy on yourself. Do what you enjoy. If it's dancing, if it's walking, if it's ballet, if it's bar, if it's uh, Zumba, if it's yoga, um, some movement, your body will tell you what it wants. And a lot of times your body tells you when it doesn't want it. Yeah. The beautiful thing for me about surfing is it's just freaking fun. And I get out when I want to get out. And usually that ends up being about two hours every day. Sometimes it's closer to three, but often two to two and a half. And I don't push it. Um, and then that's about it for me right now. I don't even do much weightlifting anymore because I don't feel the need to. Occasionally I'll jump on the pull-up bar, but most of my stuff is mobility now. Yeah. I have weights in my house and maybe I'll do a little overhead press or a little, a few pull-ups. But most of the stuff I do now is body weight because surfing is what I want to do. And if I am in the gym accumulating a ton of extra muscle mass, that doesn't help my surfing. And I don't find that I'm actually losing much muscle mass. I think that something I'll say that people will find really striking and perhaps people will will want to debate is that your body will gain muscle mass if you sleep if you give it enough nutrients if you give it enough carbohydrates and your thyroid is appropriate if yeah. you are not in a overly catabolic state if your cortisol is not elevated for a variety of reasons whether it's gut inflammation endotoxin toxins in your diet overly stressful not enough sleep your body will hold on to and build muscle and that's really cool and i think that's that's what i experienced that 
I don't have to really work too hard to maintain my current frame of muscle. And people can see that actually I started wearing my shirt a lot more on Instagram. So people may not know <laughs> how muscular I am. I'm not overly muscular. I'm moderately muscular, yeah. um, but it's, it's out there. I mean, if you search a picture of me shirtless, you won't have a hard time finding it. So yeah, and that's yeah I think don't over, don't overdo it. Yeah. And I, cause I think what I'm hearing you say is, well, you're, you're optimizing for what brings you the most joy, which is another facet of the physical thing, which is play. We forget so much, right? We take life so seriously, but your surf is a combination of your exercise and your movement. And yeah, there's certainly sprint efforts in there when you're trying to catch a wave, right? But there's a lot of kind of yeah. meandering on top of the water, but it's very playful. It brings you joy. So you're optimizing for that. And I think that's a very important point we don't want to miss in this step is it's not always balls to the wall, go as hard as you can and wreck yourself. It's about, you know, what you want to be able to do what brings you joy and do you want to be able to do it for the long run and maybe sometimes we go a little bit because of our paradigm of more is better we break our bodies down we get hypercortisolemic and that can cause other upstream problems so moving on to level six we're almost there i want to hear about your thoughts around what we call leveling up and what we're talking about here is potentially just poking some of these hormetic stresses from time to time, a little dip in the cold plunge, a little exposure to heat in the sauna. We may be looking at things in our environment that maybe might be slipping under the rug for some people. So what are a couple of things in this kind of level up way? Right? If you think about the previous steps we've talked about, if people are doing that, like I said, they're 80% of the way there. What would you say are some things that maybe take people that last 10 to 20%? Give me a couple of options that you think could be really useful there, whether it's hormetic stresses or being aware of toxins in the environment? Yeah, I would say more of the latter. I think that we, my sense is that humans tend to overdo it. Yeah. So when we're thinking sauna and cold, where most of us are overdoing it, myself included, you know, I could stay in the cold plunge longer than you, or I'm going to really hit myself hard on the sauna. And, you know, those are all going to raise stress hormones. I think that that's valuable in uh, medicinal doses, but be careful with that like anything else. I think that the the biggest lever that I would say is, is the toxin piece and just freaking sleep people like treat sleep, like business treat sleep, like, like, like a child, you know, like take care of your sleep. And it's not sexy to say that. And, and you kind of said that earlier. And in some ways it's, it's anti-sexy because maybe your partner wants to have a romantic evening and she wants to, or he wants to stay up late and, you know, and do sexy things late at night. But I mean, that's the thing that every, all of us can navigate in our own lives. Um, so you just do it's, sexy it's, things during the day is what you say, right? <laughs> before 7 30 you okay know? good there you go that's very that's sexy i like it uh, before 7 30 there's plenty of time in the day to do sexy things good, good. Uh, for me because i go to sleep so early because i get up so early uh yeah this is tmi for all of you but uh not a lot of sexy things happen after 7 30 <laughs> or 8 o'clock at night <laughs> maybe on special occasions or who knows it. but uh um i think that being aware of toxins is a way to level up and yeah. thinking about nuance around um water around environment, non-native EMFs, around, um, I mean, they're everywhere now. I just read an article the other day, there's BPA in paper towels and there's BPA in toilet paper. And I was telling uh, my team here in Costa Rica about that. And they were like, well, we're not gonna stop using toilet paper. And I'm thinking like, maybe I'll stop using toilet paper. I have a bidet, so it's a little more doable for me, you know? <laughs> but uh, it's just, everybody can kind of do those things at the level at which they are able to, but being aware of those things, I think will help people in their lives. Um, toxins in the home, the products you used to clean, all these things are, are pretty critical. Um, yeah. Next up on our highlight reel is the man, the myth, the legend, the goat, arguably, of this ancestral nutrition primal space, Mr. Marxist, and a personal health hero of mine, a guy that changed my life. I give a lot of credit to Mark because he was the catalyst for my journey into anything primal and ancestral. His book, The Primal Blueprint, was the book, the, the catalyst for so much. His podcast was the first podcast that I listened to probably over a decade ago when podcasts were this newest, uh, new cool thing on the block. So to sit with Mark was a really full circle moment. And we interviewed him on episode 10 and he had amazing insights, timeless insights. You know, this is a guy that's been doing this for decades at this point. He's a self-proclaimed 40-year overnight success. He sold his Primal Kitchen brand to Heinz for millions or maybe even billions of dollars. So a serial entrepreneur, a really powerful figure and space. And with that age and that much time in the game, a lot of wisdom. And I asked him a question because of his time in the game and his positioning as kind of like a wise elder in the health space. What is one pivotal or fundamental piece of advice that he would give for an aging population 
And then what is one fundamental or pivotal piece of advice he would give to a youthful population? And I thought his answer and the contrast between the two were really cool. He focused very much so on the aging population of muscle and that muscle is the organ of longevity. And he talked about the importance of resistance training and how building some muscle will signal basically the rest of the body to stay youthful and keep up. And his answer for the youth was maybe surprising from a health guy. You'd think about, you know, stay away from seed oils and eat your protein, but it was very much about mental health and not getting caught up in this, you know, relentless pursuit of find your passions and, and you know, let it consume you and live a happy life, but to just keep trying and keep following your compulsions and really be aware of some of the traps and pitfalls around social media use. So let's hear it from the man himself, Mr. Mark Sisson, episode 10. Well, in the aging population, it's it's muscle mass, right? Mm. It's it's that's the that's eighty percent of the battle, as far as I'm concerned, in um, you know managing uh, mobility, um, blood flow to the brain, um, st strength and agility, balance comes into play there. Uh, so anybody who's you know in that senior citizen category would be well served to increase their protein and start doing mm -hmm. some weight training. And not mm -hmm. a lot of weight training, but enough to build to build and sustain muscle mass. So that muscle mass, you know, carries over into every other part of your body. So mm. you can you can use it as a proxy, if you will, say, well, if I go to the gym and I and I lift weights, that's great. I got I got arms and I got legs, but what does that do for the rest of me? Well, it it prompts the heart to have to beat harder to keep up with that. So mm -hmm. now the mm -hmm. heart's working out. It prompts the lungs to breathe in deeply. So now you get you get the lungs working. Um, better it, it it prompts the liver to clear uh, to clear uh, metabolites and to provide uh, energy substrates more. Um, all the organs in the body sort of depend on your decision to to build muscle mass mm. for them to have a reason to live. The bones the bones will get brittle if you don't if you don't have strong muscles because the bones all attach to a muscle. And so when the when the muscle gets stronger, the bone goes. I gotta I gotta get gotta I, keep ha up. I have to get I have to keep up. I yeah. have to get stronger. And so, uh, you know, the, the morbidity that happens in older people, this end-of-life tragedy that so many people succumb to, it's, you know, it's either cardiovascular disease, which could have been mitigated by a better diet, mm. more protein, working out, um, you know, cancer, uh, that has maybe a lot to do with, uh, with industrial seed oils, mm -hmm. uh, with free radical oxidative damage, um, blood sugar management, so diabetes, loss of limbs, all that stuff. Again, blood sugar management very dependent on on muscle strength and health and muscle mm. mass um, all these things come back to you just got to build muscle you don't even have to do aerobic stuff i mean mm -hmm. that's i think one of the problems with the 60s and 70s with ken cooper and this whole thing about you, you know he wrote the book on aerobics literally called aerobics um that when you worked cardiovascularly um, running, jogging, cycling, doing all these long-distance things, that it would create a, a more healthy heart. Well, yeah. it, it sort of did, but everybody sort of then went in that direction of aerobics, and aerobic dance became a big thing mm -hmm. in the 80s, and everyone was, all the women were going to aerobic classes. And, and over the years, uh, we sort of forgot that it's, it's really muscle that drives most of this, and everything you do in the gym is aerobic anyway, mm -hmm. right? All weightlifting has an aerobic component mm -hmm. to it. So yeah. you'd rather, you, you're better off focusing on the, on the weights than you are on the long distance slogging it out. So that's for the old people. Mm -hmm. For the young people, um, it, it, I think t my thing is it's more of a mental health thing for the young people. It's now. huge. It's huge. You know, I think it's, it's recognizing that, that life is full of, um, opportunity and wonder and fulfillment and and lots and lots of chances yeah. right so you can as a young person i see so many people saying god i'm already 24 i'm already 26 i don't know what i want to be and i and i don't I, you know I don't, I don't feel connected to any sort of a passion or purpose um you know i tell my kids i didn't know what i want to be when i grew up until i was 47 yeah right <laughs> you know and then i changed my mind when i was 61 mm. um so there's no there's no meter uh, mm. running on your decision to participate in life. It's just uh, what I tell young people, especially young entrepreneurs, is live your life. Don't, mm. like, don't postpone living your life while you're building your brand or building your business. Um, but, but 
you know, enjoy every moment that you can right now because it's, it is only a process. Um, you know, one of the happiest days of my life was when I sold Primal Kitchen. Hmm. It was also one of the saddest days of my life. Hmm. I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. You know? So I had to come up with the next thing. Hmm. But it wasn't like, oh, my God, all of this, everything I've sacrificed my whole life is finally worth it for this one uh, feeling that I had for 24 hours having sold the company. It's like when I, ro- I used to run marathons and I used to do triathlons. You know, you train your ass off, and it's, and it's a lot of dedication and hard work. And it's pretty much a, again, it's sort of a metaphor for how some people live their lives. Grind it, grind it, grind it. Struggle, suffer, don't enjoy it. Um, manage discomfort, manage pain, and maybe, maybe one day you'll win. Mm. Um, and if you do win, good for you. But if you do win, there is a huge letdown the yeah. next day. If you don't win... You know, now you're really hosed. It's like, oh, shit, I did all this work and I didn't win. Unless you, unless you appreciate the process, unless you enjoy the process as you're doing it. Mm. And if you enjoy the process, whether it's building a business, whether it's building a family, whether it's you know, writing, t- taking three years to write a book, the process is really what life's about. Yeah. So for young people, I would say, don't get so caught up in having to make decisions or having to you know, become an Instagram ass model and mm-hmm. make, you know, think you're going to make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. If you don't, you know, that's okay. That door shut, find two more opportunities and move on. So also what I really love about Mark's take there is his focus on the process, right? Not just the destination. In a sense, the destination is the process. The process of becoming is better than the being. To quote a kind of controversial figure, but a very profound statement that he made, Andrew Tate, he said, having things isn't fun. It's getting things that is fun. And I think that's the process. It's like this relentless pursuit of becoming the person on the journey. Mark talks about his, you know, the marathon and actually running the event was cool, but the value was really in becoming the kind of person that could run a marathon. Selling his Heinz, uh, his, his primal kitchen business to Heinz for millions of dollars, he said in the podcast, was simultaneously the best 24 hours of his life as he realized, wow, I've just created generational wealth for my family. I'm going to put healthy products in stores across the globe. And the next day, the worst day of his life, because he was like, what next? I just spent my whole life doing this. So just a lot of wisdom, but a big focus on the process. And Mark really just goes on to elucidate a lot in that podcast that as he is reconciling with his aging, that he's trying to maximize and squeeze as much juice out of enjoyment of life, slowing down, prioritizing the process and really falling in love with the journey. So that was really cool to hear from somebody that has done it all. You know, this is a guy that's done it all athletically and done it all from a business standpoint. And we'll remind you too, that some of your best days can quickly follow some of your worst days if you don't have the next thing to sink your teeth into and really fall in love with the process. And speaking of process-oriented folks, another episode that I was just super humbled to sit with the GOAT of MMA this time. In episode 12, I sat across from George St. Pierre, uh, a personal hero of mine, GSP, widely renowned as the GOAT in MMA for the best welterweight of all time, potentially the best pound-for-pound fighter of all time, because what GSP did so good is not only did he demolish his opponents in a very systematic way, often using their strengths against them. So GSP was kind of renowned for, oh my God, he's facing this very dangerous striker and he would go in and outstrike them. Or he's, he's, oh, he's facing this beastly wrestler and he's never going to be able to stop those takedowns. And GSP would go in and take the wrestler down. He was just phenomenal martial artist from a skill perspective, but he embodied the essence of a martial artist like nobody that came before him or maybe nobody that's came after him since in terms of his level of respect and reverence and his just kind of samurai mindset. And it really spoke through on the podcast. And one of my personal highlights from that podcast is about 30 minutes in, he starts talking about fear and courage. And he talks about how he realized it's, it's okay to not be afraid of being afraid. And he has a quote in there where he says, there is no courage without fear. If there's no fear, it's easy to be brave, I guess. But that's not what being brave is, right? That's not what courage is. Courage is when you feel the fear and you do it anyway. And it's just really cool to sit across from a guy that has done the the pinnacle of the sport. This is the baddest man on the planet for a long time who's saying like, no, I was scared. I was scared every time I stepped into that octagon. 
But again, he talked a lot about the process. He talked a lot about not listening to how he felt, which was fear and breathing life into that, but focusing what he needed to do instead. And I think there's an important lesson there. Maybe instead of asking, how do I feel? What's more important is to ask, what is required of me? And that really gets into another conversation about discipline and cultivating that inner strength and self-control and temperance and that discipline really is your destiny. And to hear it from the horse's mouth of a guy that's done one of the most intense sports in the biggest stages in front of thousands of people to say, oh no, like I was always scared. I was always afraid, but I didn't let it win. And there is no fear without courage. So let's hear it from GSP himself and how he tells that story. There's no courage without fear. And I should not be afraid to admit that I'm afraid. And when I realized that, it made me, made me grow. And I realized also that fear, you can control it. But in order to control it, you need to be confident. Mm. And the way you, you build up your confidence, it's by preparation. Mm. How well you prepare yourself for the task ahead. And I know that Every time I prepare myself the best as I can be, when I close my eyes and I know there is nothing else I can do to be more prepared than I am right now, I'm still scared of going into a fight. But I know that I'm going there with confidence. And when you, you get ready for a fight to control your fear, you have to focus on the thing only that you can control. You have to be 100% objective about that. No, subjecti no subjectivity. There is no room for subjectivity. Subjectivity, for example, are stuff that how you feel. Don't focus on that. You as an entity, you do not exist. The only thing that matter, it's the things that you need to do in order to achieve your, your, what you want to do. For example, when you fight someone, like I'm going into a fight, I know that I need to do this, this, this in order to win. I need to stay for either all the way out or all the way in, never in mid-range. I know that I, I, I have to be fat to use my speed advantage. I know I, need, I have to use a lot of move, movement. That's what I need to focus on. It's very simple, but it's not so, it's simple in his, in his technicality sometimes, but it's not so simple in, the, in its application. So you need to be 100% objective. Don't try to focus on what the crowd going to think, on what your opponent is going to do, because you don't control these things. You only focus on the things that you control. And by doing, by doing so, you can control your fear. You will be afraid, but you will embrace it. You will go into the fight knowing that this fear like Kosomoto, Mike Tyson coach used to say, fear can, can be your friend. It helps you cook your food, but it can be your worst enemy. It can burn you. And that's, you need to learn how to control that. And this is a skill that you learn. I learned that skill at a very young age in a, in a schoolyard because I was victim of bullying. Like I, 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 that's one of my advantage that I realized later, it turns out to, to, to make me stronger. Because I, I was fighting some guys sometimes that were older than me, and I knew I could I could not be the victor, you know. Like I, I, I there's no way. So when I'm fighting in MMA, like many many years after, and I'm fighting a guy that I am confident I can beat. Of course, I'm afraid of failure to make a mistake. Well, to zig when I should have zag. We're all afraid of. We're not perfect. Everybody can mess it up. But I'm trying to focus only on things I control. Am I gonna win? Am I gonna lose? I don't control that. What, what, what people going to think? What is he going to do? Is he taking steroids? Or I don't control that. But I know what to do to, be, to fight at the best of my ability. And that's what I need to, to, to focus on. And if I focus on this, I know for a fact, 100%, I slope the odds of winning into my favor. Next up on the highlight reel is our episode with Kaylee McDevitt. So Kaylee is a registered dietitian that really specializes in the realm of female hormonal health, uh, pregnancy, nutrition around fertility, contraception, etc. And she, we had a wonderful, you know, fascinating conversation. We jived together really well. And um, 
she really had some profound insights on just the, the impact overall of oral contraception, which is a relatively new thing. She did a really good job of unpacking the history of when this was kind of invented and why it was thrust upon us. We had some cool conversations around was this just to benefit women or was it to also benefit a growing workforce and some of the trade-offs with, you know, going on oral contraceptions. And she made some really profound points that stuck with me. You know, she said that contraception is essentially bad feminism in the standpoint that it it got us more access to work longer days and what it gave us in the process of that was chemical menopause. And she said something that was really quite, quite profound where the, the consequences that we're dealing with now as we see rising infertility rates, which could be due to many things, including our nutrition and lifestyle, but obviously this contraception piece too, is that many women basically said, I don't want my fertility right now. It's inconvenient. And then I'm going to get off the pill when I do. But then there are consequences. And she even had some comments to make around how the pill could potentially alter mate preferences. And it was just a wacky crazy conversation to hear just how much oral contraception and other contra contraception methods can alter hormones and everything else that comes with that. So let's hear what Kaylee had to say about the costs, the dangers of oral contraception and the pill. Well, this was FDA approved in the 60s. So it's been around for quite some time mm. now. And I think, you know, there were many iterations of the hormone dose in these pills over the years, some with more side effects, some with less. But I think the reason why this is more talked about now is that this is like the first generation of women that grew up with yeah. this option. And it's been prescribed for many things aside from contraception. And I know we were talking about this before we started recording. You know, I didn't go on this to prevent pregnancy mm -hmm. in high school. I went on this because I had some symptoms I didn't like. Mm. And basically, if you go to a doctor as a female with any symptom, it's like, here's some birth control. Mm. And maybe also here's an antidepressant. You know, we can wow. do both. Those were the options presented to me. And it's widely used because it may help temporarily prevent symptomatic cycles, mm. acne, um, kind of anything in that department. But that's not what it was designed for. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that those are not natural hormones present in in hormonal birth control, they're synthetic. Mm. So the synthetic hormones, synthetic estrogen, synthetic progestins have very different action in the body. So when we were talking about estrogen and progesterone, we were like proliferative hormones, balancing them, supporting the thyroid. It's not what we get from synthetic hormones. So we've got that thing to consider. And then hormonal birth control works by suppressing ovulation. Mm. If we don't ovulate, we make zero progesterone. So now we've given up our endogenous hormone production, and we're dealing with synthetic hormones. So we've got both both issues at play. Yeah, it seems like uh, this these synthetics are move away from what is naturally going to happen in the body mm -hmm. as a consequence of being a human and eating an appropriate diet. Yeah. And also the other very unnatural thing that you just mentioned is you, you're basically just shutting down shutting the cycle. Down. And, it's and, chemical menopause. Right. What What's the consequences of that? Can't be good. <laughs> no, it can't, it can't be good. And I think the, the hot process behind this is like, if we have symptoms we don't like, I'm going to just take this and not deal with them. Mm. And like having a menstrual cycle is inconvenient for the way I want to live my life. So I'm going to just put pause on that. Mm. And we're designed a specific way for a specific reason. You know, these hormones, this cycle, the process of having a period serves very real purposes. So stopping that for years, if not decades, definitely impacts the person. And I think we're seeing this now with plummeting fertility rates mm. because the thought process here is I don't want my fertility right now. It's inconvenient. And then the day I want it, I want it to happen now. And we're surprised that it's not there. Hmm. So that's so interesting. How do you square the circle of that messaging that you just said in terms of it's just inconvenient? Mm -hmm. and And how much of that is like, only a product of a very kind of go, 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 do, 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 like masculine driven culture that is also maybe riding on the Trojan horse of, well, this is female empowerment. Mm -hmm. It's now giving you these these abilities to, you know, go and be in the workplace and stuff. And, and some of that is amazing and great, but some of it's obviously unintended consequences and harms. Yeah. Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't know who said this originally, but it's stuck with me and it's that birth control is bad feminism. Mm. Um, and if you think about the origin, you think about the 60s of this being largely on the market, you think about women entering the workplace in much larger numbers and striving to do anything a man can do. Mm -hmm. And like we can 
be promiscuous because we don't have to worry about unplanned pregnancy. We can work any job because we don't have the inconvenience of a menstrual cycle. Mm. You know, those ideas were sold to women as an opportunity for empowerment. We've got these opportunities now. We don't have to shoulder the burden of a pregnancy that we didn't want. And while I can celebrate the fact that, you know, women got to pursue things that maybe they didn't get to yeah. before, what did we get in return? Mm -hmm. You know, we got chemical menopause, we got synthetic hormones, we got all the health risks associated with that from blood clots to cancer risk, to heart disease, um, to anxiety and depression and infertility. And then we're left with what at the end? Yeah. So what did we really get? Was it freedom or was it another trap? Yeah. So it's something that I think about often. No, it's a very, <laughs> I think it's a very cool way of framing it. And it's what I often think about as well, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the same lines as you, like on one hand, this access to even education and employment that wasn't available mm -hmm. until re re relatively recently in our history is something worthy of celebrating. And at the same time is like, what are we get? What are we actually getting from this and what's happening? And, you know, you mentioned something like infertility and there's also this this conversation of declining birth rates and potential population collapse. Right. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, humans are a scourge on the earth. So good. And it's like, wait a minute, like for the first time in history, um, women have uh, no children at the age of 30 mm -hmm. than they are with child. That's for the first time yeah. since records have begun. So, you know, on one hand, that's because they're the economic stresses of needing two income households and all of that stuff but it's also a consequence of that right i'm going to pursue career more than this and maybe later i'll come back to it but now my window is shorter so mm -hmm. now maybe I only have one kid where a few generations ago we were three or four kids right. and all of this stuff is just interesting because it changed the landscapes of who we are as a species and a mm -hmm. culture moving forward i know and you know you have to think about the the marketing efforts behind this too and a, and a big piece of the education that i aim to provide is that Birth control isn't your only option for minimizing symptoms or preventing pregnancy. It's actually pretty simple to do those things. Mm -hmm. And so it was presented as like, this is the one route mm. for freedom. Like we can pursue careers and educational endeavors and not have symptomatic cycles without birth control. Mm. That's just not what you're going to see an advertisement for. So it's a big education lack yeah. in that space. And what are some of those other ways to pursue the freedom then? Yeah, I think learning fertility awareness methods should be required education mm -hmm. for, for all people. I mean, even I, I think women, but men too, especially yeah. men that plan to be in partnership with women. Um, learning that skill set gives you so much freedom to know how your body works, to know where you are in your cycle so that you can prevent pregnancy or get pregnant if that's mm -hmm. your goal. And then knowing where you are in your cycle allows you to troubleshoot where those symptoms show up. Mm. So if you know my symptoms coming around this day, I can overlay that on top of a menstrual cycle chart and I can mm. see, oh, this is when estrogen is peaking. So that's where that symptom comes from. Or I feel really crappy after ovulation. Maybe I really need to support that progesterone production. Mm. So learning that skill set was a pivotal moment for me in my own hormone health journey. And it's something that we teach all of our clients. And there's all kinds of free education for yeah. that. Like you don't have to hire somebody for this. Yeah. It's there. I hope that maybe that'll be seventh grade health class one day, but that'd be cool. Right now it? it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's like re reconnecting you back to your womanhood right. in a way, right. right? Like for since you were, you know, this big, nobody's telling you about this stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to find it again. You're like, why do I not know my own body and what is I happening? Know. And most of the time it's a male doctor just saying, oh, well, this is inconvenient. So mm -hmm. here, here's this pill. Yep. So the f fertility awareness method, that mm -hmm. is basically understanding that there's a very small window yep. where you can actually get pregnant naturally, right? Yep. Just six days. Six days out of a month. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Nobody knows that because I think the fear is that basically if it touches it, we can get pregnant. Yes. So that's why we need to be on the contraceptive pill all the time, right? Right. Yeah. So six six days, huh. um, which is a liberating thought. Yeah. And if you're somebody that's been trying to conceive for a while, you understand a lot has to go right for that magic mm. to happen. So um, acting as if it can happen any time, any day of the month is pretty ridiculous. Interesting. Talk to me about the story around the contraceptive pill potentially changing mate preferences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is some interesting stuff. It's relatively new and still small, small scale research here. But what they looked at was they took women on hormonal birth control and they showed them a battery of um, like male faces and pictures. And they raked them in terms of what they were most attracted to. And then they did the same test off birth control, too. And what they found is that when women are on birth control, they're attracted to less masculine facial features. Mm. The, that's the mate that they would select at that time. And then that changes off birth control, which is fascinating. The other piece of this is that, you know, if birth control manipulates hormones and hormones manipulate how you interact with your surroundings, 
the people that you choose to have in your life, your mood, um, it's going to impact who you choose to spend your time with too. Like it's Mm -hmm. changing your personality because it's impacting your brain. So I'm really interested in looking at studies of like success of marriage if yeah. birth control is in the mix and what happens if you meet somebody while they're on birth control and they come off late in the game, you know? Yeah, that could be <laughs> disastrous, right? Yeah. Especially if you've been long-term dating with the pill in question and now your reason for coming off is to get pregnant mm-hmm. and, and hopefully you're successful with that. But now you are not attracted to your partner in any yeah. way, shape or form and you've just threw a baby into the mix, which is... Going to test relationships, it needs to be on the most solid ground imaginable. So right. that is very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's not small fish we're frying here when we're yeah. manipulating hormones. It affects the brain. So, yeah. Super interesting. Mm-hmm. It, how do you see it? Cause like I'm a man. So I understand maybe more of male physiology and perspectives. You're a woman, you're working more in the women's health space. But it seems to me, maybe this is a crazy idea that, women are being masculinized Mm -hmm. and men are being effeminized Mm -hmm. and like men are told their masculinity is bad and they're like being pushed to become more feminine Mm -hmm. and women are basically being told like go compete with the boys do you kind of like get a sense of that's going on culturally too oh absolutely Mm. it's it's um i even felt this way when i was in school you know it was never a plan of mine to want to have kids when i was in this um, hormonal birth control kind of chemical menopause state running on a lot of stress hormones, no progesterone around, and couldn't see the possibility of feeling differently. And I think there's this um, looking down upon the motherhood track as like not pursuing something that's ambitious enough. And, you know, I'm sad to say I even felt that way for a season of my life, and that has since changed. Um, And I think a lot of that change comes from nourishment and hormone production because we can't see what else is possible. We Mm -hmm. can't imagine bringing another life in if we can barely keep ourselves alive. So segueing from that fascinating conversation about contraception and female hormone health, I had the NADS guys in the studio for episode 30, Stephen and Dan from the company NADS, who look after your NADS. This one is for my guys. And we were talking about all kinds of things, testosterone, the dangers of synthetic clothing, polyester, non-organic clothing, etc. But in particular on this kind of contraception thing, they raised a really crazy point, which is a documented study where they put these guys in a polyester sling. And by the end of this study, they'll highlight the details as they discuss this, the men were azospermic. Essentially, it made them infertile. And in the conclusion of that study, quoted that they, the authors decided that this was a safe and effective method of male contraception to wear a polyester sling. And that for me was a quite a crazy insight because so many of the things that as gents and as ladies, because we talk about the dangers of that for yoga pants and all of this other stuff, we're wearing this on our genitalia almost every single day. It was compression shorts or boxer shorts. And there was a conversation around how that could affect testosterone and how it could affect female hormone health, these forever chemicals, uh, PFAs, all of this stuff in clothes. And it's another kind of Pandora's box moment to realize that your diet is so important in so many ways, but it goes far beyond what you put in your mouth and what you put in your eyes and your ears. It's what you put on your skin too. And I think this crowd knows a lot about the dangers of synthetic fragrances and all of that stuff, but we forget about clothes so much. So I'm grateful to the NADS guys for now reminding me that I should be wearing cotton only and I protect my NADS with NADS. And these are just two great lads doing some pretty cool stuff. And that episode was a fun one that will probably be quite eye-opening. So let's hear Dan and Steve's take on all of that. In short, the best way to summarize the whole thing is that conventional apparel in general has been found to be loaded with endocrine disrupting chemicals, right? And then underneath that EDC category, there are different types of these volatile organic compounds and inorganic compounds, right? So, you know, PFAs and PFCs, perfluoroalkyl substances and chemicals and compounds, and then you have, which are also known as uh, forever chemicals, right? right? And then you have phthalates, right? Everybody knows about those at this point, very bad for the body. You have BPA, you have PVC, all of these chemicals that shouldn't be definitely not in the body. And then we're coming to find out they shouldn't be on the body either. Mm. Right. So we started diving into that. And if you ever head to the website in our references section, our blog posts, we actually reference the the, uh, the science around these things a lot. And we get that question a lot, right? Well, where are you getting this information? It's been tons of studies, right? So there was a study done, I think it was done in 1992. There was 14 guys and they were, it was an observational study done around them. And they were monitored for 365 days and they were wearing a polyester scrotum sling. For those of you who don't know, the scrotum is the ball sack, right? So they're wearing a cup made of polyester on their nads. And with that, 
I think it was 180 days into it, all of these men became azoospermic. So it means that their ejaculate didn't have any living sperm inside of it. No right. Way. So it's essentially saying this is working as male contraception. Right. Hmm. So what happened was, and not to fear, I spent years and years and years wearing polyester underwear. Um, in the end of the study, I think it took 80 to around 120 days where all of these men's levels, testicular size, uh, sperm, motility, everything normalized. Hmm. And most of these guys ended up going and having children with their partners, which was a big part of the study as well. But the summary, I remember the last line in the study, it says, it's like, in short, polyester sling is a safe, inexpensive, and um, efficient form of male birth control. Wow. So when I read that, I thought to myself, okay, I don't think I'm trying to have that happen with my underwear, Mm -hmm. right? And if you're wearing boxer briefs, which are more compressing, which are actually the most popular style of underwear out there, that is essentially kind of like a polyester scrotum sling, right? Mm. So that was the thought there. And like, that's one of the biggest studies. And there's been tons of other ones that you can find in the references section on our site that have pointed to this being a legitimate scientifically backed issue. And that's when we kind of knew, all right, this has some urgency to it. Next up, I had my ginger sister in the studio, Hannah Frankman, and we had a conversation all about education and homeschooling, mostly centered on how homeschooling is an alternative to the public education system, which is failing objectively and maybe subjectively for some of you. And she just had some crazy statistics, the history of school, all of it was pretty mind-blowing conversation for me and very fascinating as I'm a father now and I think about these things. So let's check out what Hannah had to say about how school is failing our children and school is failing our boys in particular. You know, there there really is no more damning thing to look at when you're thinking about the outcomes of the school system. I mean, the academic outcomes are pretty bad. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the the mental health statistics of our children, it's really sobering. Uh, I tweeted a chart recently of uh, the suicide rate throughout the year of kids, uh, high school boys and high school girls, and then like all the data con- conglomerated. Um, and there is every like year over year, there's this big drop over the summer. And then there is a huge spike at the start of the school year. Mm. Also, uh, hospitalizations for um, suicide attempts and self-harm are also, they correspond with the beginning of the week, too, for kids. So there's this very clear correlation between, and, and people will argue it away. They'll be like, well, like maybe it's seasonal you know, depression. But seasonal depression does not start like clockwork the, the yeah. week before Labor Day every year. That's still summer. It's it's the school system that is the culprit here. Um, and, you know, across the board, we have this epidemic of ADHD, um, which that, that one in particular is actually really interesting. And I've talked about this on Twitter a lot. We've written some articles on Rebel Educator about this, that we think that our especially boys who are, you know, primarily the ones diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, we think our our little boys are broken because they don't want to sit still for eight hours. And then you stop and think about that statement for a moment and you realize, wait a second, who in their right mind would think they could, who would have the audacity to think they could make a little boy sit still Mm -hmm. for eight hours? They have so much energy and they want to go do things and break things and build things and then break them again and fight with each other. Like they want to be having this very embodied experience of figuring out how to be alive in their bodies and Mm -hmm. in the world and how to navigate those two things. And then you're making them sit down and listen to you drone for hours. Of course they can't sit still and pay attention. It's not the child that's broken and needs a drug. It's the system that's broken. But, you know, it's much easier to just grease the flywheel and prescribe them things that, you know, just like feed them into the medical system. And then you, you just the whole the whole system just keeps subsisting off of itself but really it's the system that's the problem yeah you're articulating a lot of what what i felt actually you know this that was interesting that thing you said about how these uh hospitalizations and suicides would spike around the beginning of the school year or even the beginning of the week i got a memory when you were saying that about when the school holidays were coming to a close i would cry the night before going back to school because i did not want to be there at all and i never enjoyed school and it wasn't because I was particularly not intelligent or anything like that. I was 
trapped in that system. I just wanted to act out. I wanted to fight and break things and play and laugh. And you're not allowed to do that. And I remember now several times the end of that summer holidays and like sitting in bed going like, oh my God, I got to go back to that place. It just felt like prison. And I know, like, I know not everybody has that experience. And look, I went through it. I'm okay now. I'm only a little bit messed up, you know, not totally. So it's not like it's a death sentence for everybody. But these are conversations we should be having, right? These absolutely are things that might sound controversial and crazy to people, but they're very real. They're grounded in reality. The statistics are there. The failing is obvious. And there's many, many people that are broken by the system. So we spent a lot of time talking about what is failing. So let's transition for the little bit here on, on, on the solution of homeschooling and, you know, what it actually is and maybe some of the things that people misunderstand or get wrong about homeschooling. Yeah, well, I think you alluded to this earlier when you talked about, you know, people, they're homeschooling, but they're still schooling. I think there's a lot of emphasis when people talk about homeschooling on the word, the school part mm. of the word. Um and I think, you know, school is a noun and it's a verb. And a lot of people, when they think about exiting school, they only think about the noun part. They think, okay, we're going to leave school as a building and we're going to go elsewhere with our children. But they forget that, you know, if you're, you're, when you're breaking yourself free of the system, you're breaking yourself free of all of it. You don't have to go and replicate exactly what you do in the classroom at home. Uh, you've you've broken yourself free. It's like it's like getting out of prison, and you still follow the exact same schedule. Like you know, whatever time the lights shut off, you yeah. shut off your lights, and you sit alone in the dark, and you're caught. And it's like, no, you're free now. You can do whatever you want, but you just like don't know how because you don't have a model for it. So I think a, I've watched a lot of families homeschool in a lot of different ways. Again, there's a spectrum. You got the unschoolers. You got the very formal. We're mm -hmm. just replicating everything that happens in public school. We've got the timer on our oven in the kitchen or whatever and we set it for 40 minutes and you do english and then at 10 o'clock we're going to yeah. switch and do math and i think you know you're, you're you're learning to the test and you're learning to make sure that you can you're reading this passage so you can pass the quiz at the end of the chapter and then it's okay if you forget everything that you've learned after because we're going to move on to the next mm. chapter like if you're educating your kids that way you're missing 95 percent of the point you've gotten out of the classroom part which is cool i guess but you're not you know, you're you're not radically rethinking, well, what should my kids' education actually be? Are the are the foundational principles of how we think about educating our kids, what are they based on in the first place? Like is this actually a as a level of base assumptions about what an education ought to be that mm -hmm. I agree with? I think you have to take like a real uh kind of Descartes approach where you strip down everything you think you know and it's like, okay, you know, Descartes in exploring philosophy is like the only thing i know for sure is that i'm thinking therefore mm. i must exist um and in the same way i think you have to strip down like okay i have a kid and eventually that kid is going to be an adult and that adult is going to need to know how to navigate the real world yeah that's pretty crazy stuff right this this um trend in the uptick of suicidal ideation and actual suicide attempts as kids get ready to go back to school the anxiety that comes with that this our boys are broken because they won't sit still for eight hours a day under artificial lights and listening to a teacher that probably isn't very passionate and sitting in rows and staying still and only speaking when spoken to instead of being out there playing and getting the hands dirty and roughhousing and building things and then breaking them. And instead it's like, oh, these kids can't listen. These boys can't listen in particular, these rambunctious little monsters. Let's put them on some kind of medication. Let's make them numb. Let's make them more docile. Let's make them more controllable. Like in what world is that a solution? It's it's quite clearly not. And it does highlight one of the very big problems that is not just focused on our boys, it's focused on our girls too. But it seems to be that, you know, much of these diagnoses and these pills are being pushed on our boys because they're less agreeable. They're a little less conscientious. They are a little bit crazy. I have boys. You need to let them run. You need to let them play. You need to let them fight. And that is why I'm personally choosing to keep them out of regular traditional classrooms because it's not set up for those children to thrive so really cool stuff there from hannah she's got an amazing podcast too you can check it out that was episode 32 with hannah frankman in episode 33 i sat down with taylor collins who is 
an entrepreneur, a regenerative farmer, a bison farmer. He brought into the consciousness the brand Epic and then sold it for a, a good amount of money. And now he's using that money to really highlight the importance of regenerative agriculture. He's got Rome Ranch. He's doing Force of Nature Meats. This is a, a really tapped in individual in terms of the wisdom of Mother Nature, our capacity to heal soils. And also he's just putting good products into the world. And we know we need more of that. So I want you to listen to this clip about his uh, his take on how the experts say, well, this isn't sustainable and we can't do this and Regenag can't be done by everybody and how he's actually seeing and feeling a different energy from how he's healing his soils with regenerative agriculture practices. So check it out from Taylor. The, the regenerative agriculture, it gives me greater hope than any other path moving forward. And just some examples of, of things that I've seen on my land. But at the end of the day, what I've realized is Mother Nature's capacity for forgiveness is so much greater than our own species' capacity for destruction. And that gives me a lot of peace um, because we used to think that it would take 500 years. You know, science and um, academia was advocating 500 years to build an inch of topsoil. That's simply not true. Hmm. There's pioneers in the space like Joel Salatin and Will Harris who have built three, four inches of topsoil in 10 years. Oh, that's insane. Wow. So, you know, like, it's hard to wrap your head around, but it's, it's almost like, you know, we have like all these beautiful live oaks out here and it can take 300, 400 years for a live oak to really achieve just this phenomenal status. But what if I told you, you could plant a seed and then in 10 years, that live oak would become a 400 year old live, mm. live oak. I mean, that is like the, the stretch of faith and, and the opportunity that mother nature gives us when we put those cycles back into operation. And so I think just as inspiring as it is for humans to really reclaim their own health and their own journey, overcome tremendous obstacles in the face of modern medicine, heal themselves through really fundamental basic things like food and lifestyle, the same applies to land. Mm. And so if you, if you have hope in knowing all these stories of people that have changed their lives for the better, that is directly applicable to all of our landscapes with the right mindset. Yeah. It's like, uh, I love wordplay and soil is so close to soul. And humus is so close to human, and it's just this very cyclical interchange between the two. I guess one of the common pushbacks, I guess, or confusion points for people around regenerative agriculture is it's not scalable. It's, it's, is that true? Is there any truth in this idea that regenerative agri agriculture is not scalable to you know, reverse what we're seeing? Yeah, I think, I think that narrative is absolutely being driven again by experts and by scientists that have conflicting interests hmm. um, that no surprise is connected to the you know pharmaceutical agricultural industry yeah and so the the truth is and the reality is that right now on our ranch that we've been managing for almost seven years we can raise three times more animals per acre than anyone else in our county wow um we have more wildlife than anyone else in our county we have better water infiltration we're we're springs are literally emerging out of rocks where water mm. never was or where water had been hundreds of years ago. And so for me to think about feeding the population, if, if I can take an acre of land and now make it three times more productive in seven years, shit, that's a pretty good start. And I also think about when, when we have this conversation about feeding the population, I, I really think we begin to feed the global growing population when we learn how to feed ourselves mm -hmm. in our community. And then we already figured it out from there on. Mm -hmm. um, it's replicable. So mm -hmm. I don't think regenerative agriculture is about scale, like getting bigger. Each producer needs to get bigger enough to feed the world. But it's about contextually, how does everyone have more uh, independence and freedom with their own food production? Yeah. So in that clip, he, he said something along the lines of Mother Nature's capacity to forgive and heal is so much greater than man's um, capacity to extract and cause damage. And I thought that was really profound. It just shows you that this regenerative agriculture isn't scalable thing is, it's not, it's not always the truth. And I liked his answer that it's not the goal to make this overnight process and change, but it's the goal to focus this in more on our local communities first and empower other people to do what they can and let this be a grassroots movement that builds and builds and builds because we need to do something, right? If we don't change anything, we're gonna get what we've always gotten and that doesn't look so good. So it's just really cool to have powerful names in this space. And we had some other regenerative farmers on the podcast this year that were amazing. We had Will Harris on, we had Sam Moffat on. These are all so important and we support our farmers so much. Um, but Taylor just 
has a really powerful way of telling this story. And the fact that he's raising herds of bison, this borderline mythical creature, the stories he tells in that podcast about the wisdom of that animal and the the, the kind of the wildness of the animal, the rawness of the animal is really, really powerful. So I encourage you to check that one out if you haven't seen it. That's episode 33 with Taylor. And last but certainly not least, and of course we could have pulled in dozens of other clips for this podcast, but we're trying to just pull out the best stuff and honor your time, is another um, local neighbor of how I was out here in Austin, Texas, Mr. J.P. Sears. He sat down with me in episode 40, and he was incredibly wise, surprisingly wise. I just thought J.P. was going to be like this funny, cool guy with some cool insights around freedom, and he had all of that. He was cracking me up. The team was laughing. Just a bright energy to be, to be around, but he was really profound in a lot of the things that he was saying. Not just conspiratorial, not just um, salacious around political ideas, but actually getting under like what really drives this. And he had quite a profound answer to my question, like, who are they? We talk about them a lot. Who are they? Let's check out what JP said about that. I think you'll find this fascinating. Broad strokes, who are they? And maybe I'll get more specific in a second, but who are they? They're people who weren't held nearly enough as children. So, you know, looking at, the Bill Gateses, the George Soros, the Klaus Schwabs, uh, the Joe Bidens, the Justin Trudeaus, people who seem to be taking away freedoms and having an agenda of using people to serve themselves rather than them being of service to the people, which is what they're supposed to be doing. Ultimately, you look at them and realize they're human beings. They're they're doing things I would judge to be very tyrannical. Why? And, and I think we need to remember, you don't try to control other people unless you feel out of control yourself. And what tends to spin people the most out of control as far as like living their life in a controlling manner, they feel unloved. You know, the, uh, the typical compensation for not feeling loved and valued is you try to control the world around you. Control is what makes our ego feel safe. Ideally, your ego feels safe because you're bathing in love as a mm -hmm. child and you learn, I am safe and secure in this world. That's ideally what the parents are instilling in the child as a foundation. But when that doesn't happen, you get people trying to compensate for it for a life. And, you know, if they're not doing their inner work, they're not, whether it's ayahuasca therapy, coaching, breath work, or all of the above, where they can actually turn the corner and find love rather than compensating for it, then you, I think that's the source of what's going on in the world uh, or the reason why. And so in other words, to me, it's all about control. It's people who are run by their egotistical nature. The ego wants to control. The spirit wants to surrender. The spirit honors the will of others. It'll assert boundaries as well if the mm -hmm. will of others is trying to infringe on them, but spirit surrenders to the will of others. It surrenders to the will that wants to live through us. That's a beautiful way to live. So uh, I, and also I think history teaches us a lot. You look at less than uh, polite regimes in the past, what they have in common is controlling other people. I, I, I do my working definition of evil is Evil is trying to control anybody else in a way that's not in their best interest. So I think that's really the ultimate agenda, simply control. And a lot of people would say, no, you know, it's money. No, I don't think so. I think money's maybe number two or three on the list, but money is just a, a mechanism to control. If you have money, then you can buy what you want. You can like, okay, other people have less money. I have more money. Money is just a tool we use to assert more control in our world. And hopefully we do that in a pleasant way rather than unpleasant. Yeah, so I thought that was really quite profound. His answer surprised me. I thought he was going to list off a bunch of names, as a lot of people do. You know, the World Economic Forum and George Soros and this guy and that guy and Bill Gates and da-da-da. 
And, uh, you know, he, he later got into naming some names, but his answer there of these were basically children who weren't held enough was a moment that kind of took me back of like, wow, yeah, maybe these people didn't feel that love and now they're trying to create safety and they just so happen to be in positions of power and the way they do that to kind of quell that lock, lack of security is create security in the external world by telling you and I what we should do, you and I what we should eat, you and I what we should put in our bodies, you and I how we should live. And nobody wants to be told what to do like that, right? And I think you here watching this show, you radical health seeker, you truth seeker, you in particular are going to push back against that just like I am, because we know that that's not freedom and that's not sovereignty. And JP had some amazing insights towards the end of the podcast too about operating from a vibration of freedom, not fear, that fear is very constrictive. And if you get all wrapped up in your head about the fear of these people, then you're kind of, you're kind of like, going against yourself in a way. You're in a Chinese finger trap. The more you pull against it from that energy, the deeper you get suckered into it. So you need to transcend that. You need to go beyond it. You need to trust. You need to love. You need to listen to your heart. You need to acknowledge that there are real problems in the world. And the only way we're going to solve these is at the individual level. It's that grassroots movement again of operating at a different vibration for ourselves, the vibration of love and freedom. It's a really cool stuff there from JP. And that's it for today's show, fam. Like I said, we could have gone all over the map. We could have told you to just go listen to every episode. And that's what I encourage you to do. If you're new here, go through our back catalog. We've had amazing guests on the show from day one. And if you've been along for the ride, well, thank you very much. We are just getting started. We are going to go as far as the wind carries us. And we're going to make those more favorable in our way. We're going to keep having amazing guests on. We're going to keep doing this thing. I'm going to keep providing you value. And we're just going to have amazing, radical conversations with radical humans. So, so grateful for you listening and watching and liking and subscribing. Still, to this day, the most common way that somebody finds a new podcast is a personal recommendation. So our gift, or if you want to give me a gift, which I would greatly appreciate, is to send this to a friend, to send this to a loved one, to reshare this to your Insta stories, whatever it is. But we really appreciate you. Those were some of my personal favorites. But to be honest, everyone's my favorite. I'm having an absolute blast doing this and I'm very grateful for you all for being here. So keep tuning into the show. We'll be doing these for many years to come because we're not going anywhere and you stay radical. We'll see you next time. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.